Hello. Welcome to the first 10 pages. I'm David Ferrier. Uh, thank you very much for checking out the show. I am going to have to speak a little quieter than usual because it's very late at night and I am staying at my parents' place for the holidays. Uh, so my co-host for the show is professional screenwriter Keir Wilkins. And on this show, we talk about the screenplays of your favourite and sometimes not-so-favourite movies and focus on the part that is supposed to hook the reader, the first 10 pages. Our guest today is the writer Mike Sachs. Mike's resume, uh, to me, honestly, is, is a kind of intimidating. He's written for The New Yorker, Time, New York Times, The Washington Post, McSweeney's, Vice, among others, and is currently on the editorial staff of Vanity Fair. He's also written uh, a bunch of books. And if you're interested in humor writing, you have to read Here's the Kicker and Poking a Dead Frog. You have to. You don't have a choice. It's the law if you're into uh, comedy writing. You also have to check out his new book, Slouches. It's a novelization of a film that never existed. I won't say much more about it because we do talk about it in the show coming up. We also have the usual segments, the first 10 pages, obviously, the next 10, and must mentionables. Now, look, this is probably, uh, I haven't looked, but I'm going to assume this isn't the first podcast out there with three dudes talking about the movie Network. But I think there's a chance it's the first time that three dudes have talked about the movie Network from three different time zones. Because I'm in Perth, uh, Western Australia, for the holidays, Kier's in Melbourne, and Mike is in New York City. I thought, you know, there's a chance we might break the space-time continuum recording this episode, but thankfully that didn't happen. Uh, And I'm really glad, because this is a really fun episode. It was a really fun conversation with Mike, so let's get into it. The first 10 pages, episode 13, our guest, Mike Sachs, he chose the 1976 satire, Network. Prepare yourself for a perfectly outrageous motion picture. Howard Beale went up there last night and said what every American feels, that he's tired of all the bull... Six, Diana, we're talking about putting a manifestly irresponsible man on national television. I am not putting Howard back on the air. It's not your show anymore, Max, it's mine. I got a feeling I'm being made. You are. Ladies and gentlemen, the Network News Hour with Howard Beale. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Are they yelling in Atlanta, Herb? Are they yelling in Atlanta, Ted? Network by Patty Chayefsky, directed by Sidney Lumet, produced by Howard Gottfried. Television will never be the same. Hey, Mike, I'll, I'll start by um, with, a, with a quote about you from David Sedaris. If you don't know who Mike Sachs is, well, you should. His writing is funnier than just about anyone's. I say hooray for Mike Sachs and everything he stands for. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you for having me. This is really exciting. I mean, I think it's a great idea for a podcast. It's very unique. All right, we'll isolate that and put that as a pull quote. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, that will be the poster. <laughs> hey, Mike, what, why have you chosen uh, Network? Uh, Patty Chayefsky is one of my favorite writers. I've read all of his or most of his scripts, and they're just dense. They're almost tangible objects that if you were to hold these in your hands, they would feel like paperweights. I mean, there, there's a density to them that I don't see with a lot of other writers. You know, he, he was an adult writing for other adults. And one of the things that I see often, especially with comedy or even dark comedy, it's appeals or trying to appeal to a certain segment, maybe teen boys or early 20 something boys. This script to me felt very adult when I first saw it as a kid and still feels very adult now that I'm an adult. And it just was written by someone with life experience and career experience where he could talk about the news. He could talk about writers. He could talk about networks and you knew he knew what he was talking about where he didn't have to go out and do research where it sounded fake. It it always was very authentic to me, which is incredibly important when you're dealing with the themes and the satirical subjects that he was dealing with. Uh, It's important to get that sense of uh, realism. Do you mean, um, like he's writing for screen, like these screenplays written to be read, 
not just as sort of a blueprint for the director? Well, that's interesting. I mean, I don't like reading screenplays. I, I just don't enjoy them. Some people do. I don't know how people make a career out of reading screenplays, but Patty Chayefsky's scripts to me read like short stories. And they are, for me, enjoyable to read um, almost as a separate entity as they are to watch. What What is it about screenplays you don't like reading? You know, I don't, it doesn't hold me. It doesn't, I don't get lost within a screenplay like I would a book um, or a story. It, it just, it seems to me almost like a puzzle uh, where parts are missing. And I have a hard time envisioning how something might look if it's not described to me like you would in prose. But one of the great things about the script and Patty Chayefsky's writing is his descriptions are very vivid. So it's almost like you're reading a play by Chekhov or something. You can you can envision the scene very easily. Yeah, the the prose style big print that that he writes. You know, he he won't hesitate to kind of spend half a page describing the room or the you know the way things are laid out or the geography of the space, which is really unusual. And so many people would um, advise against that, I guess. To for script, you know, emerging screenwriters, you'd say just, you know, the bare minimum, you don't need to know this detail. That's for production designers to work out or, you know, only if it's crucial to the action or the story, put that in. But he, re- yeah, you're right. He really paints a picture with this kind of dense, dense scene descriptions. Well, yeah, that's a very good point. I think there's a lot in the script that a beginning writer would be told not to do. But to me, it works because of that. I mean, he did what he felt was necessary to get the story across. And if it if it entailed describing a room and it takes up half a page, he felt the need to do that. And he got away with that because he was brilliant and well-known at that point. I think there's a lot of things that uh, young writers are told not to do that they shouldn't necessarily be told not to do. I, although I don't, you know, screenwriting is, I'm not as familiar with as I am with prose writing. But I think in prose writing, they're always being told, don't do this, don't do that. But if you can make it work and you feel it's necessary for the, the success of the piece or the screenplay, I think you should be able to do that. I wonder if, um, does it have to do at all with uh, that this was 1976, sort of the golden age of American auteur cinema, where you could get away with it a bit more? Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the scripts for Jaws or Star Wars, it becomes cartoonish right after this. I mean, if you look at those screenplays um, that we now look at as being the greatest of the 70s, you know, I, I read recently um, The uh, Last Detail, and that is, it's just, is beautifully written. And it's, it's Robert Town, isn't it? It is. And he's still alive which is incredible. I actually want to interview him, uh, but he's, he's a tough get, but mm. you read this script and then you read a script that would come out in the late seventies or early eighties. And it's almost like a different form. You know, it's just, it's totally different. And it, it really skewed writers, I think, to sort of avoid even trying to write a piece like this. Uh, it's just, it's just a whole different genre at that, that time whether it's being there or the last detail or network midnight cowboy, all all these movies to me are the movies that I love. And once the cartoon element came into them, uh, I sort of lost, lost interest. Yeah. It's, it's, it almost feels like scripts from this era, you know, there were, it was in the eighties really where this sort of idea of a formula or a, you know, exactly what a writing was as a specific art form and it feels like just prior to that, so around the time Network was being written there, it's still this kind of amalgamation of um, theatrical writing, um, playwriting, prose, and writing for the screen. Like some of the, the monologues that are littered through this film are very, very theatrical, and you would never see that these days. You, you know, you might get one, one bite of that in a third act now where your hero finally gets up and makes the big speech, but... So many of these films in the 70s had were littered with monologues and they are considered, you know, the iconic, the iconic moments from so many of these films are these great monologues. Right. Well, a lot of these writers in the 70s came up through either radio or early TV. So Patty Chayefsky used to write a lot for TV 
and it was all dialogue filled. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, they're they're master uh, masterful dialogue writers. Um, you can just you can sense it just even reading it off the page. You can almost hear these characters in your head. You know, they had popped out so many scripts for so many years that they were just they were lifers. And um, I just don't get that sense now when I read newer scripts. And I can tell you that the people uh, who make comedy today, whether it's Bill Hader or Judd Apatow or Bob Odenkirk, these are the movies they love. These are the, the dark comedies they love, but they're not watching Meatballs necessarily now. They might have grown up with it. But it's these dark movies from the late 60s into the early 70s that really influenced them and uh, really made them want to become comedy writers. Well, what what influenced you? What made you want to become a writer? Oh, I mean, I, I was into, I mean, I was born way after, but early National Lampoon with the slash and burn type of humor with Michael O'Donohue, Doug Kenny, um, Albert Brooks, uh, Woody Allen, later David Sedaris, uh, David Letterman, uh, um, Richard Yates, actually, which is strange. I mean, I, I really always liked a lot of dark comedy. When I first saw Network, I think I was 15 or so, it just blew me away. I couldn't believe that anything that dark could be pulled off in such a way as for it to work. And it still shocks mm. me, really, how it works. I mean, these mm. characters, even the minor characters, Robert Duvall, are just so well drawn and realistic and, and true to life and heartbreaking. And there's a few scenes in this movie that, you know, are, I think are one of are some of the best scenes in uh, film history. <laughs> Did you um, always want to write prose, write, write articles and books and novels? Well, I wanted to write for Late Night with David Letterman, but I didn't, uh. I didn't know anyone and, and I didn't know how to do it. You know, it seemed very far away. So the only thing I could do was write for prose, for, write for myself. And I never really wanted after a certain point, after I saw what Hollywood was like, um, to then write scripts. So to me, the most fun I, I have writing is, is prose. I have written scripts um, and a few hopefully will be made into movies, but the process for me is not as nearly as enjoyable. What is the process for you? Do you beat everything out on cue cards or do you, you know, do you write uh, very detailed outlines? No, I don't do any of that. And that's one of the reasons I really didn't, I don't fit into a lot of Hollywood type producers or other writers as they do that. And I can't write that way. I I have no idea where I'm going and I don't really want to know. Uh, The best um, description of writing I ever heard came from David Sedaris. And he was telling me that he, he looks at it as like a game he would play as a kid where he would stand on the couch and he would want to get across the room without stepping on the floor. So what he would do is he would thro- throw a pillow in front of him. And each time he would then hop to the other pillow, grab another pillow, throw it, hop to that one. To me, that sort of uh, encapsulates how I like to write. I can't foresee where I'm going to hop beyond that first hop. And I don't really think one should. And that going back to telling young students what not to do, I don't think one should outline. I think it limits you. And uh I think you should be as surprised in some ways as either the reader or the viewer. Yeah, I, re- I remember reading a similar thing from Stephen King wrote a book on his process and he similarly was kind of like, I know I know the end, roughly the end scene, I've got that in my head, um, but I'm just, you know, finding my way there as I go, you know, moment to moment. And I think you're, you're quite uniquely positioned um, to have quite a good, view on different people's processes because you've you've written on the process I guess or on on humor writing on comedy writing and in those books interviewed a bunch of people so what a kind of right you know like your David Sedaris example have were there any other things that leapt out to you from some of those people you interviewed that changed the way you thought about the process yeah it was interesting well I'm glad you said comedy writers because a lot of people think that it's a book of interviews with comedians and it's not it's comedy writers and it was Quite a few people who I could have, I would wanted to interview, say, but they were, I felt they were more performers than writers. 
So the people I wanted to interview were really behind the scenes. They were the names I looked at growing up. And when the scroll came up, you know, someone who would write for SNL or Letterman or what have you. And these were just people who, whose I felt had achieved a level of success that I wanted to pick their brains. And that was really the only reason I wanted to do it. But there, there were pieces of advice across the board that were quite similar um, among these, these successful comedy writers. And one of them was you really can't write for anyone but yourself. If you try to appease an editor or a producer or a nameless audience member, the piece, the, the people, the reader, the audience will be able to tell that. And you really have to get, get into this for yourself. And you can't get into this business to become famous or to become rich. It really just does come through the love of comedy. And it really does come down to you writing what you want to write, how you want to write it. And that was really a big lesson for me to, to be singular and to do what you want to do. I think is an extremely important thing. I think a lot of young comedy writers feel that, oh, I have to write for SNL or I have to write for The New Yorker. There are a million things you can do and a million things where you can get your work out there, which never existed in the past. When I was first starting out, there wasn't an internet. So this didn't exist. There were fanzines and that was as many readers as you had. Now you have the possibility, the opportunity to be read or to be viewed by as many people as who read the New Yorker or the New York Times, potentially. And I think that's a tremendous opportunity that has never existed before, which makes it all the more important to really stay true to who you are and to put out material that makes you happy. It's a good rule. I personally find it tricky, though, because... Um because of that innate, I, w- I want people to like what, uh, you know, like that instinct of like, well, I want people to like it. What if it turns out what I like, no one else is interested in. Right. But listen, I don't think, well, yours is a different situation, right? Cause you're dealing with money, right? funding and such. Is that right? Well, yeah. In Australia dealing mm-hmm. with, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Market forces for sure. So, uh, you know, for me, uh, to use a specific example, when I put out Stinker Let's Loose, I didn't think anyone but 50 people would read this thing or even beyond it ever listen to an audio version, which I didn't even envision. But I had to get it out, I felt, just because I I was tired of writing pieces I wasn't happy with for people who didn't really want to read them and pieces that went bad quickly. You know, a lot of them these pieces were for magazines based on current events and they went bad very quickly. So I wanted to write something that was character based and I really didn't think anyone would read it, but that turned out not to be the case. And it it was a good lesson in the sense where, yeah, you may not have a million people. This book isn't going to be sold in, in airport bookstores, but you do sometimes want to appeal to the right people. And if it's 5,000 people who buy it, but if it's a right 5,000, then that can be very helpful to you um, to produce other type of projects that mean a lot to you down the road. Well, just to circle back on um, the the two humor writing books that you mentioned, I just want to mention uh, Poking a Dead Frog and Here's the Kicker. They're the two books of yours that I have. And I just particularly, uh, the one that stood out for me from Here's the Kicker is you had the writer for Conan who gave you his packet, what he sent in, for uh, to get the job on Conan. And it's really interesting and really like a good resource for anyone who's interested in humor writing. Yeah, that's my friend, Todd Levin. I actually just spoke with him yesterday. It's funny, that, that fascinates me because when I was growing up, I didn't know how to go from point A to point B. Like, how do I go from where I am in Virginia and Maryland? How do I go to New York or to LA? It seemed like a very big leap and I didn't know how to do it. In essence, the leap isn't as big as you think, and there are certain things you should do and certain things you shouldn't do. Uh, And I couldn't find books on how to do those certain things. One of them is to write a sample packet. So I thought it'd be interesting to show people that it's not as mysterious as you might think. You can do it, but it does have to be done in a certain way. And Todd, at that point, had just been hired by Conan, and um, I thought it'd be interesting to show young writers like this is how he got hired and this is what worked for him. And if it worked for him, it might work for you too. 
Would you now like suggest going down that path or because of the internet and stuff, can you focus maybe on trying to find your own audience and, and just sort of make your own work? Yeah, I think you have to um, because I, you know, I know people who are writers who rely on another person's, um, you know, saying yes to a project, whether it's for the page, whether it's magazine editors or book publishers or, if they're executives out in Hollywood and you kind of go crazy if that's the case and no one goes into writing to be given permission to do anything. I think, you know, I, I think one should do whatever the hell you want and you, they have that opportunity now to get your voice out there. And if, and if it's good, it'll most likely be seen. And you see this, with uh, whether it's uh, movies or TV, mm. like the new TV show Pen Fifteen, that's a very singular uh, comedic sensibility. And I don't think that ever would have gotten through if we hadn't seen them uh, and they hadn't been able to do what they wanted to do and show the world before that. You know, there was there was too few people getting through with too few ideas in the past, and now that the floodgates have opened, it makes it a lot easier to get out the work you want to. But at the same time, there's also more competition. Um, so it really is important too to not only put out good product, but to be able to sort of network and to get that product mm. into the right hands. How do you feel about that, Kia, as a, as a working screenwriter in Australia? Yeah, well, it, it is interesting that the um, the conversation has very much changed from to you know what's your unique perspective that's what people are after and i think there's a, a bunch of people that have um been you know the the sort of screenwriters who have been kicking around for 30 years who are suddenly you know they know how to write a cop show with their eyes closed they know how to write you know and obviously those things still exist but the the real currency now is you know the mayor um uh, I may destroy you of the world, you know, these kind of things that are so unique and so specific and so personal. And that's, you know, so now everyone, it feels like there's this race to look inwards and mine your own trauma and try and find, you know, try and find the, which is a, you know, is a weird kind of chasing the market in and of itself. But, um, but yeah, it is interesting to see how that conversation has changed where the the more sort of left field or the more singular uh, the, the idea is, the more it seems to open the door to Netflix, Amazon, Hulu. Well, before we uh, move on to network and more chat about Paddy Chayefsky, Mike, tell us about Slouchers, the novelization. Mm. Slouchers, well, I've written three novelizations to movies that do not exist. <laughs> and... <laughs> The reason for doing that was it's just a good opportunity to, to create a fake movie without spending a dime. So the first movie was called Stinker Let's Loose, took place in 1977, and it's a trucking and CB movie uh, that were was huge here in America. I'm not sure how big it was outside the U.S. with Smokey and the Bandit, Every Which Way But Loose. Very specific type of rural Southern movie that uh, pop culture was very very rural before it then became uh, Northern and urban in the eighties. But I, I always loved those movies and I thought it'd be fun to sort of make fun of these, uh, these highway cowboys that they used to be called these truck drivers who are really just basically losers who are, were portrayed in such heroic terms. So that first movie was called stinker. Let's loose the novelization. And then it was made into a, an audiobook with John Hamm playing stinker and uh, P.F. Tompkins and Andy Richter and all these other people. And hopefully now it'll be made into um, a movie. So I'm hoping that it started off as a novelization to a fake movie, which was made into an audio book, which will now be made into a real movie. Uh, let's move on to the screenplay network by Paddy Chayefsky, 1976. Uh, we didn't read a specific draft. It doesn't have a date or anything. It's just a copy I found online, honestly, but it seems pretty legit. Kia, from like a screenplay perspective, like what, what kind of story is this? Well, it's interesting because, you know, we, we're specifically looking at the first 10 pages and those 10 pages probably would lead you to think that you are looking at a certain kind of film. But then from that point, it sort of expands outwards and changes and, and keeps changing throughout the film 
you know, all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm in kind of a kitchen sink uh, romance, domestic drama. And then, but yeah, certainly in the first 10 pages, it's a, it's sort of set up through the narration that this is a, a film with a singular hero. It's a, um, you know, there is a protagonist that is going to take us through the story and he, you know, he's in a point of crisis within the first 10 pages that's going to spur him on a journey. And it's, it, I thought it was really interesting reading this that in the first 10 pages it didn't necessarily leap out immediately as a comedy the way it does or, or a satire the way it does when you watch the film. Like I feel like there's something in the direction and the tone that tells you um, that this is, you know, that you're watching a skewering of an institution that didn't necessarily come across on the page. Like you could read those first 10 pages and think you're just about to watch a serious drama. I think that's a very good point. I don't know if this movie would get made today because of that. You know, he was known as, he was a known commodity. And I, that black comedy aspect to it, I, I don't think that would have been picked up on. I think that's sort of lost um, with people now. And I think it's just one of those scripts that it was a miracle that it was made and made that well. But I agree with that. There's a lot of elements in this movie. And it, it seems to um, avoid cliches within all those elements, um, which I find amazing. Even within the um, scene where the, the wife confronts the husband over the affair, um, that's done in such a beautiful way. And it's so simple in some ways. I mean, it's just a simple line where the wife asks, do you love her? And I, to me, it just gets to everything about relationships where the, what, that's what the wife is concerned about, not necessarily the physical, which is what the husband probably would have been concerned about. So even that type of what you say, kitchen sink, I think is done in such an original way uh, as to make it just very, a very unique movie. Yeah, and every, you know, could potentially tread close to a cliché he he almost seems to draw attention to it and kind of do this. There's several times in the film where they talk about, you know, well, this would be the moment in the in a movie where X, Y, Z, or, you know, he, he talks about the romance as though it's a, you know, a three-act structure romance movie. So anytime he veers towards cliche, he undercuts it by um, making a point of the fact that, that's what's happening. Well, that's right. And I think he could do that because he had been in the, in the industry for so long. You know, it's like a, a musician, a pianist who, who plays off the melody, like, a, a, you know, in a jazz or bop beat because he just knows it so well. So that's a perfect example where even the characters are saying, like, three-act uh, drama, say this now, do you say this now? It's interesting, too, because if he wasn't a known commodity, I feel that the satire would have been mistaken for what he was trying to satirize. I don't think they would have understood uh, what he was trying to do, and they would have looked at it as being cliche. But he was really playing with cliches and, and making the cliches fresh. This, this might be another example of, like, uh, we did an earlier episode about the death of Stalin, uh, Armando Iannucci. Mm. Uh, and our, our guest pointed out that this is not something you should attempt as your first script, mm -hmm. you need that cachet. Uh, you need to have built up that reputation uh, so people know, have a better uh, chance of understanding what you're going for. Well, I think not only reputation wise, toolbox wise, I think you need to grow as a writer. And margin of error here is very thin. And you can easily slip into cliche and easily slip into things you don't want to. Like you, you do need to be a master at this. I mean, it's almost like a surgical precision at this point. And I think it's the type of thing where he could not, Paddy Chayefsky, as talented as, as he was, could not have written 20 years previous. Um, there's almost something a little even, uh, as sort of relevant as it is still, there's even something a little quaint I found that it's just about television. That right. it's like, oh, you're the television generation. Television is corruption. It's like, well, just wait another 30, 40 years until a thing called social media comes away and literally undermines right. the democratic process. You think that television's evil. You ain't seen nothing yet. Well, I mean, imagine what it was like to view that at the time. You know, I recently reread a book of black comedy pieces that Bruce J. Friedman put together. And, um, you know, with Joseph Heller and all these amazing writers. And at the time, it must have been shocking. Now, you know, you can read a story like this in Harper's or Atlantic or anywhere on the internet. 
But I, that's what fascinates me. Like, what did the first audiences feel? And we'll never be able to get that back, really, except for first person or second person accounts. It just won't exist. It's just a totally different world. But it was a successful film, wasn't it? I wonder if did Pauline Kael review it? Like it was a, it was quite popular with critics and or I mean it won Academy Awards and everything. Yeah, it was a huge amount of awards. I, I yeah. think it was popular for, for satirizing what might never happen. I don't know if anyone predicted like, oh, this will happen. I mean, it was almost cartoonish in its um violence, like with the last scene with the with the assassination. Um, but I don't think anyone could have predicted like like it would be a Philip K. Dick story where he almost predicted the future. I mean, that to me is a master satirist, and you just you don't see that uh, often at all. Also, being there is another example of this, where he basically predicted the George W. Bush presidency as well as the Trump presidency. Um, all right, let's summarize. I'll summarize the first ten pages of Network. A narrator introduces us to the world of network news programs, specifically to our hero, Howard Beale, a highly regarded newsman who once held a huge audience share but has recently fallen on hard times. In fact, his popularity has waned to the point that he is being fired due to lousy ratings. We uh, find him out on the town with the president of the news division and old friend Max Schumacher on the night of the news of his termination. They are both roaring drunk and seem in good spirits, reminiscing about the old days. Then Howard jokes to Max that he's going to kill himself live on air, and Max responds by saying it'd get a hell of a lot of viewers tuning in. They then uh, uh, extrapolate the ideas of suicide of the week, execution of the week, rape of the week, laughing the whole time. Howard wakes up the next day, hungover, and goes into work. We see him preparing for the day's broadcast, clearly at home and most comfortable in this fast-paced environment. Then he goes live on air and delivers the news. But at the end of his broadcast, Howard casually announces that due to poor ratings, he will be retiring. And because the job was the only thing going for him in his life, he intends to blow his brains out live on air a week from today. The director and executive producer are busy having a private joke behind the camera. So at first, they don't even register what Howard has said. But when a production assistant fills them in, chaos erupts and they all scramble to get Howard away from the desk. But Howard has every intention of continuing and struggle and a struggle ensues until they finally cut the broadcast. That's uh, just about summarizes the first 10 pages of the, of, uh, of network is um, Max Schumacher. The only one who comes close to having a heart in this film. <laughs> yes. Cause he's the well, only I think one. His wife. Well, his wife of the, of I'll say of the sort of the, the lead characters um, because he's the only one I noticed. That's a very good point. Who, the only one at any point. Not, who, none of them are likable. Yeah. And he's the only one who at any point uh, is concerned about um, Howard's well-being. Mm. He's the only one who says he's not well. We should get him right. help. But um, everyone else seems pretty heartless. That's what I love about it. The characters get used to the fact that he is going to kill himself on the air very, very quickly. It doesn't take much, you know. They're not going to therapy to talk about this. And I think you're right. I think the the one likable guy who actually ends up turning on his wife is is that, that one character. I can't think of any other character in this movie besides... Uh, you know, the, the man who ends up being assassinated, who's more mentally ill than he is likable. I can't really think of, of many other likable characters in the movie. And that that Hollywood's always talking about likability. There's not many likable characters in this movie. And is that something that's unique to satire, do you think, that it can get away with that? Totally. And that's something that is, is a problem with satire because audiences and agents and producers don't want to deal with unlikable people and to me what makes someone unlikable is if they're one-dimensional i'll find any character likable if even if they're not likable but if they're three dimensions i find that fascinating people who you may not want to hang out with but you find them likable likable because they're fully drawn and all these characters even if they just appear for a few minutes are fully fleshed out the um, you talk about um, not uh, outlining, not plotting out a whole when you're approaching a new project. It feels like maybe this first ten pages does contain the seed for this idea that inspired Patty Chayefsky, because the the whole concept of killing yourself live on air that actually happened, 
around this time, there was a, a newscaster in Florida that, who committed suicide live on air. And so I wonder then, just following up with what we were talking about, if that was the thing which sparked this and this opening, which is very attention grabbing, was um, where he started for the whole project. I don't think it was. I think he was interviewed about this and oh. said he came upon that later. But that's a story that's fascinating. There's been two movies made about that uh, situation where the young uh, newscaster at a, at a smaller, uh, in a smaller city uh, in Florida, uh, shot herself live on the air. Um, but I, I don't know. I'd have to go back and look at that. But from what I remember, I don't think he got it from that, from that idea, which is crazy, really. You know, sometimes these satirical ideas are just in the air and they just more than one person thinks about them. And this might have been in the air. You know, this is right after Watergate and right after America was involved in Vietnam assassinations. It was just madness. And, um, you know, I think this that that thought of of killing oneself on the air could have just been out there and it was just plucked down, you know, and used by this, this mentally ill woman and also by a genius writer. But that's an interesting point. I, I have to go back and look at that. I, I read a similar thing that he, um, there was some conjecture over it because he, it's actually the case, the specific case is referenced in the dialogue of the script. Um, but that he says he was already working on network prior to that incident happening. And there was another case with a guy named Bud Dwyer who was not a, not in media, but he was at a live uh, media event mm. and he pulled out a gun and shot himself. And that actually exists. Footage of that exists. Uh, I made the mistake of watching that, which was, I've never forgotten. It's just horrific. Mm. But um, yeah, I mean, I remember growing up and like, there was always talk about snuff films and, and all these videos that were coming out faces of death and they were all staged. Mm. Um, but that's another thing that, that, uh, Patty Chayefsky predicted, like you can go on now on the internet and see people die for real. None of it's staged. Mm. And the thought of that and having children watch it. And now that I'm a father, you know, scares the shit out of me. I think that's just, it's unbelievable that he would uh, have predicted that it's become this common. Um, Kia is the, the announcement that he intends to, kill himself is that the inciting incident seemingly kind of each character almost has their own inciting incident in this film but yeah that's it's that's certainly how it's set up and it's really interesting i think that i feel like if this film were made today you would you would get into that moment faster you wouldn't have the scene of him joking about it at the bar uh as this you know where his colleague thinks he's just you know it's just a drunken remark and then you get to you would just go straight in i think it's quite interesting that it's sort of like there's two bites of it in the first 10 pages he says it in the in on a drunken outing and then he actually says it again live on air um so you kind of know it's you know that it's coming a little bit or it's been foreshadowed in some way whereas now i feel like you would just open on a guy making this you know incredible statement live on the air and then you would kind of um, unpack and from there. I was just thinking about the the use of narration in this, particularly in the first 10 pages. It sort of gets a bit of the narrative like work out of the way because I was thinking about, you know, if, if it went down that path, would you have that that background that first you get to spend time with Howard and you get to empathise with him a little bit. But, they, but the narrator sort of gives yeah. you that with... Um, just the line about how he's a childless widower mm. and now he's losing the only thing he has going for him is crushing. Who is the narrator? Do we ever find out? No. <laughs> Maybe he's the only sympathetic character. Yeah, he's purely there as that as that kind of Star Wars scroll. It's just like, let me give you a, a bit of an exposition dump and then we can get on with this movie. But I find that fascinating. It's almost like a god figure, which I think, I don't know if I've seen otherwise. I mean, it's just... Yeah, usually a movie will end if, if you don't know who the narrator is, the camera will focus on the narrator as he's talking. But in this movie, you never find out who it is. And I think that's 
a very interesting technique, which I don't know if I've ever seen before. The, ca the casting of the narrator as well, you know, who does have that um, very authoritative newscaster type voice that does almost make you feel like it is the, you know, and now the seven o'clock news, you know, it's got that, that vibe to it. So it, yeah, it fits in with this idea of, you know, of the world of the film. The one thing it did it remind me of um, was the uh, PA announcements in MASH, the movie. But that was used for more comedic mm. effects. How do you feel about narration in general? Yeah, I, I um, usually am not for it. Um, but I think in this case, it is used perfectly. I mean, as you say, it's, it's a news person's voice narrating a story about a newsman losing his mind. And to me, it was a very clever way of doing it, like going back to MASH, where the movie ends with the announcement over the PA system, tonight's movie has been MASH starring. And I always found that fascinating where it came out of that, uh, you know, jumped out of the story itself and almost looked right at you, the, the, the viewer and said, this is the movie. It was very self-aware, but I, I love that uh, narration and how it jumps into the story so quickly. And I'm also fascinated. The, the toughest dialogue I found to write is, casual di dialogue among friends especially longtime friends and what what the script uh, network pulls off is you have the narrator and gives the information that you need and then he steps out of the way and then these two old friends are talking and it's entirely believable and it says a lot about the characters which to me is incredibly difficult to pull off mm. um, you know it's easy to write when two characters have never met, but when they've known each other for 30 years, that's a lot more difficult, I think. And that's one of the reasons I love these first 10 pages. You immediately know who these people are and their relationship to, to each other and their relationship to the industry. And I, I always love that. Mm. Um, Kia, any other notes on the first 10 pages? Uh, I, I Only that... Uh, what, what I think it's very cleverly doing is that there's there's almost something, like I absolutely agree um, with you, Mike, that the characters are, are incredibly three-dimensional and well-drawn, but they are also these almost, uh, it's almost like a Brechtian sensibility to it where they're each embodying a kind of a value system that are all going to orbit around Howard Beale, you know, and Max is being established, I think, as the the value system of journalistic integrity. Uh, and I think they do that in these opening scenes, go like, this is the character who's going to, you know, who's going to play this role. This is the character who's going to play this role. And they're all, you know, orbiting around this one central character who's going to have a, you know, who's battling mental illness or going to have some kind of breakdown. Um, and I think it's just so masterfully done. It's right. A, well, that's an interesting incredible. point. They're all circling around a character who's unstable. So they're playing off of someone and something that is not stable, not rigid. And how they react to that looseness shows who they are. And in most of the cases, or in all the cases, it brings out the worst in these characters. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it is interesting that in that opening narration, they go, this is, you know, he says, this is the story of Howard Beale, but sort of, uh, yeah, but it's, it's not really. It's um, no. He's the tool that everyone uses for their own right. their own intentions. Yeah, it's it's kind of a kickoff point to explore all of these other different viewpoints and sort of right. you know it's a it's a film much more about an institution and and themes mm -hmm. than it is about you know a hero's journey. Let's move on to the the next ten. So this is you you, you hook a reader with the first ten pages. If you were then to give them the next ten, uh, which is a very loose guide we, you can give them one page you can give them one piece of dialogue uh what would be, be the next pages you'd give them uh mike it could come anywhere in the script right absolutely anywhere all right well there's three and um actually three three scenes that i always think of and the first one is the scene between max shoemaker and his wife louise shoemaker played by william holden and uh beatrice Strait. And, you know, a long time married couple and he reveals that he's having an affair and uh, Louise says, do you love her? And I always found that, you know, incredible that a, a male writer could write that because it really does, I think, get to the heart of uh, a hurt female. 
so that would be that one scene would be one and then the um infamous scene of ned Beatty uh talking to howard beale um which was satirized recently on um better call saul which i thought was perfectly done is this the mr mr jensen the head of the uh, parent corporation that's right arthur jensen exactly. oh it's just such a great scene it's it reveals that he is basically as crazy as howard but uh for the corporate exactly. universe side right so the insanity exists all around it's just a matter of who is in charge of that insanity and that that's what I always found fascinating by that. And then the third one would be the famous scene of, um, you know, Howard saying, I don't want you to riot. I don't want you to get a protest. I don't want you to write your congressman. That's when he, you know, he says, you've got to say I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to ride. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. So I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. That is such a beautifully written scene where um, people at home who are watching this madman let themselves go because they're, what he is saying is true in a sense. He's crazy, but he's speaking the truth in a lot of ways. And they let themselves go crazy. And you can see the joy in the characters' faces as they scream out the windows. I always love that scene. Isn't it funny that, that like, he offers no solutions? It is just, I don't know what to do about it, but I'm angry. And let's all be angry. And, boy, that really that really come into play now in America. Everyone's so angry. And they don't know what to do about it. And um, it's, there is, it's just an anger. And everyone's taking it out on each other. Um, what I liked about that scene is no one's really taking it out on anyone. They're just coming together to scream out the window. We're mad mm -hmm. as hell and we can't take it anymore. How about you, Kia? I chose the exact same three scenes. And I mean, <laughs> I think that it's interesting because all three of those scenes are essentially, or at least contain a massive monologue. Um, you get the, you know, you get the great monologue from Louise, you get the great monologue from, uh, Jensen and um, you get the great monologue from Arthur Beale and as a testament to how good those scenes are it's uh so Ned Beatty who played Jensen got an Oscar nomination for that one scene uh and he's got a great quote of saying like actors should never turn down work like I worked a single day on network and I got an Oscar nomination um and then Beatrice Strait who plays Louise is uh, only on screen for five minutes and two seconds in the entire film. And she, hers is the briefest performance to ever win an Oscar. Oh, is it briefer than wow. um, uh, Shakespeare in Love with uh, Dame Judi Dench? Because I remember that was like a oh, particularly yeah. short one. But I, wa I watched Network thinking, because that's just an example that I'm aware of. And I watched Network thinking, wow, yeah, this is just, it is essentially this one scene. One scene, but it is such a powerhouse of a scene. It and is so right. deserving of an Oscar. But yeah, just incredible that he, he creates these kind of mini films within these scenes. Because he writes, he, some of the scenes in this film are long. You know, you get like 12 minute scenes. Um, but yeah, they're just so gripping because he writes such fantastic monologues and such fantastic dialogue between characters. There are so many um, monologues in this film where I I could just see uh, um, theatre students everywhere using <laughs> them to audition to get into you know acting school. Yeah, there's just so yeah. many to choose from. One of them being um, not the one I would choose, but just I just so enjoyed it was Faye Dunaway's uh, monologue about her background. Uh, the I was married for four years and pretended to be happy and had six years of analysis and pretended to be sane. My husband ran off with his boyfriend and I had an affair with my analyst who told me I was the worst lay he'd ever had. That is just <laughs> so funny. Yeah. So, so and funny. The fact that she screams out Nielsen ratings as she's orgasming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Amazing. Everything. But, I think... Um, yeah. Just to quickly touch on that Jensen scene again, I think what's um, so brilliant about that one, which would maybe make it my top pick, 
uh, of the next 10 pages is that it, it is sort of the bookend of the arc for Howard Beale. He goes from yeah. a character who's saying, I'm a human being, damn it. Like I deserve, you know, I have value to someone who embodies this value system of Jensen after he hears what Jensen has to say about like, no, the individual is dead. Like this is, there are no, there are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There's no West. There is only one holistic system. Um, And yeah. And Beale swallows that up. But the, and the dialogue, the dialogue is mirrored to Howard Beale's first, when he's doing his broadcast and he's talking, he's saying he talked to God and he said, why me? He said, because you're on TV, dummy. That's exactly the word, the exchange yes, that he has yeah. with Mr. Jensen um, when he's kind of converted to the, the corporate capitalist uh, philosophy. Um, I'd also mention the, uh, and these choices are mainly because they're just, I found them so funny. When the ecumenical, ecumenical liberation army are arguing over their TV <laughs> contract. Such a great scene. Just so funny. So funny yeah. and so satirical. And um, I think another good uh, contender would be when when the reveal happens of the new Howard Beale show, when they introduce it um, and you have Sybil the soothsayer and the skeletons in the closet and Vox Populi. Um, I think that's a nice shows where this is going to get to. That Black Power uh, scene was a risky thing. I don't think you can get away with that today, but... They really made everyone from the far left to the far right mostly concerned about money and uh, commercialism and capitalism. And the fact that these guys on the far left, Black Power, knew as much as they did and were as savvy as they were about how to get their message across, I thought was a very, very clever thing for, for that. Movie. Yeah. Well, yeah. And like when, the, when, that, when the character turns up for the meeting and she turns up with um, half the William Morris agency <laughs> and she's a you know, leader of a communist party. Um, yeah, it was just great. I guess it's, you know, every, every, yeah. every counterculture will eventually, you know, once it become, once it gains enough, yeah. uh, you know, not enough fame or, you know, it will become commodified. It's like, you know, the wellness industry right. or any anything that it, you know starts off as this fringe thing as it gains in popularity eventually a corporation's just going to throw enough money at it and be and make it part of the mainstream so to take the most like far left radical um ideology and see them arguing over back end points is just incredible <laughs> Um, the must mentionable. So this this segment is just basically we can talk about whatever we want. You can't talk about network without mentioning uh, what, Mike? Uh, well, I think the present. I mean, the anger, the madness, the uh, the way America has turned out. I think um, what we're living every day here in America is madness. And this movie, I think, captured it as well as any any movie ever made. And um, to me, it's a very American movie. Um, combined with being there, those to me are the, are the movies that be- best represent the present. And uh, I just think it's a work of art, the, the, the scripts. And it, it's sh- I'm just shocked by it. each time I read it, there's no nothing in there that, that doesn't have to be in there. Everything works. And I just think it's uh, one of the best scripts ever mm. written. What about you, Kia? Uh, the only other thing I think... Um, that I would add is this idea that, you know, as a coming at writing from the, from a thesis rather than a character or a plot idea, or I think there's something really interesting about that. And there are some workbooks of Paddy Chayefsky's that you can access online where you can kind of see his process as he's working out what exactly he wants to do. And this, this film very much started from, a thesis from a point, you know, from a, an anger that he was trying to, you know, figure out himself and work through. And then he built a story around that and he peppered that thesis statement with characters who, you know, who could argue the different sides of that argument. And I think that's a really interesting way to come at a story and not something that I, that it's not how I would necessarily approach my work, but I think it's a really interesting way to do it and something I would love to try and do so I yeah I think for any you know for people that are listening that are students of screenwriting or you know still 
um, still making their way through the craft, then it's a really interesting exercise to go like, okay, well, here's a, a central dramatic argument. Here's something that I'm wrestling with in my own, you know, in my own mind. And now I'm going to build characters who represent each point of that argument and then just have them go at it on screen and see see what happens. I wonder what's more difficult, to start with a character or start with a theme? Yeah, I don't know. I haven't, having not attempted to write from theme, I couldn't mm, tell you. That seems tricky. And the, the, those notes that you um, pointed out, uh, Kia, that I've seen like just watching an interview that he would write, like he would write to himself. He would write out his thoughts that like there's, there's, this is too big. There's too many characters who have too many agendas that got to blah, blah, blah. Like do either of you have that sort of process where you will sort of think out loud on the page? Uh, I don't, I don't necessarily, I mean, you know, writing to me is just improv that's, that's controlled. So whatever is not needed, I I typically get away from immediately, but to go back to the character versus the uh, thematic element, you know, I think for satire, it's important to know what kind of tone and sensibility you need and then to have those characters help help carry it through like a trojan horse almost like they're carrying in that satirical Mm. theme my guess is he had that theme and then worked on these characters after it that would be my guess Mm. but i don't know um a few more things film won four academy awards mostly for for uh the performances but also for the writing uh here's an interesting bit of trivia peter finch won for his performance as Howard Beale, Best Actor. He was uh, won the award posthumously. Um, Peter Finch was an Australian actor, born in Britain, but was an Australian actor. Uh, the only other actor to be awarded uh, an Academy Award posthumously was Heath Ledger, also Australian. Well, that's interesting, too, that he knew he was going to die and still captured this character, isn't it? I mean, I, I would have to think that him knowing he was going to die played into that. Hang on, character. sorry, I wasn't aware of that. Was he unwell during the the making of the film? Yeah, he had. Can- I think he had lung cancer. Oh, okay. Wow. I think the the anecdote is that the mad as hell scene they got it in one and a half takes because he did a full take, and then they he went okay, let's go again, let's go again, and Peter Finch could only get through half of the monologue in the second take. Um, so what you see in the film, the first half is from the second take and the rest is from the first take, but they only got one and a half bites at it because Peter Finch, you know, he, he couldn't go on because, and I'm not sure that he knew the severity maybe, or that maybe it was that other people on the set didn't know that he was unwell, but he just kind of had to take a breather because it's obviously such a demanding scene. God, that colour, to rewatch it now, for me, that will shade the whole thing with a whole other level of pathos knowing that um he knew that he was unwell particularly the nature of the character um have either of you uh, described a character in your writing as a crusty but benign something <laughs> <laughs> no i'd like to though that's that's a good one to steal all right uh final notes before we go on network by patty chayefsky anything else we want to we want to note down before we finish I don't think so. No, I, I found that the, um, the music in it is the soundtrack is interesting. And the, um, the, the, the design of it, like so many elements that you don't even think about uh, that came together, the camera work isn't too overbearing and the directing is incredible. So like everything had to come together to pull this off. And it seemed like if one thing didn't come together, the whole thing would come crashing. It seems like a very fragile type of beautiful object. That just works. Do you what? What's after Network? Uh, what's another? What would be the next Patty Chayefsky film you would recommend? People go see. I like Marty. Marty's um, good. It, I've seen Marty. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, an interesting film. It's a bit dated, but um, I found it really interesting. That type of character was new at that time. Sort of the schlub wouldn't become a big type of heroic character until the seventies. Um, so, you know, usually it was a virile man who was getting all the ladies. This was just the opposite as a simple butcher. Um, but I thought the um, performance was great. And I thought the writing was really good too. That's interesting. I think that's something that's always worth. It's easy to not take into consideration is the context of the time that, um, 
that something like that, that a character like that was new, particularly when something has become so familiar since to then go, well, look, if you look at it alongside the other films that were released at the time, it was, it was like this, it was a new progressive thing that they, um, to, to focus on a character like this, as opposed to, as you say, someone who's tall and fit and gets gets all the ladies. Uh, well, I think a lot of it was made at that time about the fact that this was a loser. I mean, losers mm. weren't, movies weren't made about them. Um, and I think, I'd have to go back and read reread the re- reviews, but a lot was made about uh, an entire movie surrounding a schlub who doesn't get the girls, you know? That was a new thing. Mm. I mean, I, it was done comedically with Jerry Lewis, but th- this wasn't done in a clownish sense. It was a real person who was, uh, you know, a loner and sh- and shy and unhappy. And I think that movie too was ahead of its time in a lot of ways. How about you, Kia? Any final notes? Uh, no, not really. Only only to say that it was such a um, a pleasure to revisit this film because I hadn't yeah I hadn't mm. seen it in so long and I'd never read the screenplay either. So. Yeah, it was a real gift to kind of um, take a proper look at this, and I think it's a really fantastic one for um, for anyone who's well, any screenwriter basically, yeah. or any writer. Just yeah, to, it's on one of the it's on a must read list for a yeah. screenwriter or a sp- absolutely steal from the best. Uh, Mike Sachs slouches the novelization. It's it's out now. Where can people get it? Uh, it's available everywhere. I don't know. Uh, hopefully, it's available. Uh, where you guys are, um, I think it should be. I have actually attempted to buy it online, and it uh, it, it said it couldn't uh, send it to me. But I think that might have just been the particular place I was trying. Well, it is available via Kindle, so I know you, you it you can get it where it's not in hard copy. Uh, but um, you know, Amazon, any any private, hopefully um, sm- even a small store, bookstores. I like to support indies. Mm. Will be will be selling it. Thank you so much for doing the show, Mike. This was really fun and interesting. This is great. Thank you so much. I love this. Awesome. Another pull quote. Mike. <laughs> uh, thank you, Mike. Thank you, Kia. We'll see you next time. This is actually the last episode for, for 2020, so we'll see you in 2021. Fade to black, the end. The end.